Good morning. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in your richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your lives justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Good morning, everyone. I'd invite you to have that passage open in front of you, Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4. And this morning we're covering the second part of the passage that we began last week, uh, which is why we've got the same Bible reading. You'll see a bit later, a heading titled number two, Gospel Transformation Begins at Home. And there's an outline in the order of service as well. Just to point out too, there is a little picture there, a slide about our picnic and baptism service next week. The time is incorrect. It should be 11 a.m. just to confirm that. Now, I'm glad we've got a bit more time to cover these verses this morning rather than trying to do them all in one block. Uh, These are tricky verses. They touch on sensitive topics like marriage and parenting and even the, the idea of slavery. And to help us keep our bearings, though, we've got to keep in mind that Paul is not starting a new idea here in verse 18. That's very important to take note of. Today's passage, like last week's, is really a continuation of the call to those who have been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and to recognize that transforming influence of being in Christ together. So keep that in mind this morning as we read these these directions for families and households. It's all part of seeking the things that are above. For those who know that they have died with Christ, they are in Christ together. Uh, Keeping this in mind is going to help us not get bogged down in some of these real hot-button issues. Would you join me as we pray, ask God to bless our time together, and then we'll continue. Our Lord and our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray now that your word would shine so that by it we can see its truth and the way to life in Christ forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Now remember, the letter to the church at Colossae was delivered from Paul's prison cell 
to probably Philemon's house in Colossae. And there the church would have gathered to read it. And I think if you were there that morning or that day to hear this letter to the church read out, perhaps by Tychicus with Onesimus standing nearby, you might have noticed a change in atmosphere as he got to verse 18, or what we know as verse 18 and onwards. These words about wives and husbands, these words about children and parents, about slaves and masters. I suspect you would have noticed raised eyebrows, perhaps a sharp intake of breath here and there, or maybe some uncomfortable shuffling in seats, maybe glancing around the room to see how others were reacting. Especially Onesimus, he in many ways is the kind of elephant in the room, uh, the runaway slave of the master whose house in which the church is meeting. But yes, I think there would have been at least some nervousness as these words were read. Not much difference then, maybe, to when these verses are read out in a church in Australia in 2022. They don't necessarily land in a comfortable way, do they? But what we might not realize is that the reason these words were uncomfortable for first century Roman Christians are actually quite different from what makes them uncomfortable reading for us today. Remember, the Bible is written in real history. It's written to real people, about real people, by real people. And this means that responsible Bible reading has got to involve, at some level, getting to grips with how it landed and how it was intended for the first hearers before we jump forward 2,000 years to what it means for us today. So there are some things worth knowing about the social structure into which this letter was written. I'm going to run through these briefly to help us get our bearings in this, cha- in this passage. For one thing, the husbands of verse 19, the fathers of verse 21, and the masters of chapter 4 verse 1 are actually all the same person in a Roman first century household. It's worth knowing that. You see, the Roman home was dominated by the oldest male, and he was known as the pater Familius. You might have heard that phrase used before somewhere. And don't worry, there won't be a Latin exam at the end of this. But, but the pater familius in his household was effectively a domestic king. And this played out in his role as a husband to his wife, as a father to his children, and as a master to his household slaves. Now, these are all the roles that would have made up a typical Roman household. The pater familias, wife, children, slaves. Of course, these are quite different to what we have today. Back then, everyone sitting in the church would have fitted into one of these roles. It's not quite so today where we uh, have, you know, not everyone here is married, not everyone here is a parent, not everyone here is directly under their parents' authority. I hope no one here is a slave owner or a slave. But even if you don't fit neatly into one of these categories, just know that Paul has got the whole home in mind in what he's describing here. Now, the pater familias, the head of the house, had legal power and authority over his household and over everyone in it. This was known as the patria potesta, uh, literally the power of the father. Sounds like a great T-shirt to get your dad for Father's Day. But listen to what it actually meant. It meant that over his wife, He had the right to kill her and her lover if she was guilty of adultery. Although it was quite acceptable for the husband to engage in extramarital sexual relationships. Um, If 
his wife was caught in adultery, he had to kill both of them. If he only killed the, the other party, he was guilty of murder. So he had to kill both. But he could. Uh, over, his, uh, over his slaves, the paterfamilias had the right to do as he pleased. Slaves were simply considered to be human tools. And the master owned them as his personal property. And physical and sexual abuse of slaves was not uncommon. Over his children, one scholar notes this. The patria protesta included the power of life and death with exposure at infancy, sale, chastisement, noxal surrender, which is being able to exchange your kids for repayment of debt, and the right to force your children to divorce, though probably not to force them to marry against their will. It's the kind of thing the patria protesta gave the man of the house. In fact, if a child is born, the child was laid on the floor. And only if the father of the house picked up the child was it accepted into the household. If not, it was left outside, either to die of exposure or to be picked up and taken into slavery. What all this means is that the things which make us uncomfortable in the passage today, the directions for wives to submit to husbands and for children to obey their parents, slaves to obey their masters, and the whole idea of slavery, these are not the things which have made the Romans uncomfortable. This was normal life. Of course they have to do those things. But instead, the things which would have made them uncomfortable were things like how in each pair of directions, do you notice that the subordinate person in the relationship is addressed first? They're given a greater dignity and honor in God's family than society gave them. Another example is the suggestion that pleasing the Lord rather than duty to serve the paterfamilias should be the motivation for good conduct. There's also the assertion that God cares about justice for the slave. How about that? No one else does, but God does. And we've got that clear but crucial statement in verse 25 and 26, that the the patria protesta itself is an illusion, that there is a higher power of the master in heaven to which the master on earth is accountable. And I wonder if this is why Paul is so economical with his words here. He doesn't say much. He doesn't go into detail about what these things mean. Because into the social culture in which he's writing, even such simple directions are actually quite radical. So again, so we don't get bogged down in these social issues, I'd like to remind us where we've come from. The beginning of chapter 3 is really the beginning of this section And as a result of who Christ is and what he's done for us, we're told to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So as we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the new kingdom of Christ, we're to behave as members of that kingdom, taking off the earthly and being clothed with a new nature, a new behavior, a new attitude towards God. And because of this new nature in Christ and how it determines my relationship with God and how it shapes my relationship with God in Christ and how it shapes and determines your relationship with God in Christ, so it must also shape and determine the relationships we have with one another in Christ. You might remember the triangle from last week, which again is not going to work for me. It's fine. It doesn't like me. But because Christ is all and in all, verse 11, the relationship transformation can't just stop at the church level. 
can't just be a transformed relationship between those people that we only see a couple of times a week. In fact, because Christ is all and in all, this gospel transformation must permeate down to the deepest, most private and intimate relationships in our lives, the relationships we live out in the privacy of our own homes. And because God chose through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, the gospel must impact everything, from the cosmic down to the domestic. It's like the gospel is this meteorite which starts out there in the furthest reaches of space and comes crash landing down in our lounge rooms. Now, we're going to go through each of these three pairs of directions here, and we'll take them one pair at a time. But keep in mind where we've come from. Keep in mind the social structure into which Paul is writing. And we'll start with wives and husbands. The Roman wife's duty or role was one of duty to her husband and duty to Rome. For her husband, she had the responsibility to serve the advancement of his career through her role as a hostess and a homemaker and to serve the advancement of his family through producing more and more heirs giving him children. She also served Rome by making more and more little Romans. Marriages were often arranged. Wives were often significantly younger than their husbands as well. Her life was one of constant submission. But amazingly, though the gospel entirely transforms who she is in Christ, it doesn't change the fact of her submission to her husband. I think this is one of the reasons why the passage is so hard on modern ears. But it's hard because we've been taught to believe that human happiness and flourishing can only happen in the expression of individual freedom and and that submission to authority is always undignifying or dehumanizing in some way. We're led to believe that the only way we can experience uh, true happiness is if we throw off all authority and we are absolutely autonomous and independent. It's got to be said, this is not the message of the gospel. Remember, we we haven't simply been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into our own kingdoms where we are the king. We've also been transferred to a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And now we submit to him as king. It's Colossians 1.13. The Bible says, actually, that true human flourishing and dignity is found not just in freedom from sin, but in submission to Christ. Excuse me, not in independence, but in dependence on Christ. Jesus. So that's why, far from calling for a wife's blind obedience to her husband's every will and whim, the Bible here calls for wives to intentionally submit to their husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, in a way which brings honor to the Lord Jesus. Fitting in the Lord also means that before God, Christian husband and Christian wife are absolutely equal in dignity and worth. God doesn't see them differently. Uh, They're not saved differently. They belong to his kingdom together. But she serves her husband and submits in a way which brings honor to the Lord Jesus Christ in the role that he's given. She cultivates her own relationship with Jesus. And out of the security of that relationship, she serves her husband's loving leadership in the home willingly and eagerly. And of course, I think fitting in the Lord might also be the basis of refusing certain demands which would not be fitting in the Lord. 
But the fact of a wife's submission to her husband doesn't change with the gospel. What changes is the character of her submission, especially as she realizes the dignity and honor she has as a beloved daughter of the father. By way of example, you might remember the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, In the movie, one of the, the mothers before the wedding shares an old proverb that, yes, the husband is the head of the home, but the wife is the neck that turns the husband. Of course, the Christian wife finds no need to manipulate the situation in such a way because her willing submission to him is simply an extension of her willing submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she recognizes that they are both equal in dignity and worth under God with different roles and takes up her role willingly. Of course, these, all these directions are done in pairs and they can't be separated from one another. And so this direction cannot be separated from the command to husbands. In verse 19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The teaching of the Bible in these things can and must never be used as an excuse for abuse or exploitation of any kind. The chief duty of the husband, according to the gospel, is to love his wife. And actually this, rather than the wife's submission, would have been surprising and perhaps even shocking to first century ears. And this love is more than flowers and chocolates and heart emojis and texts, although I understand that those are still appreciated. But this love is an active, intentional, considerate working towards your wife's well-being in all things, emotional, physical, and spiritual, as your equal in Christ, but one for whom you're responsible. Why the danger of harshness, though? This word can be also be translated as bitter, bitterness. Why does Paul flag that danger? Well, perhaps it's a warning that though we might do all we can to love our wives well, they might still not respond to our love in the way that we would want. And that's okay. Because we don't love our wives for our sake, but for the sake of Christ who commands us to love them. This is not about making anyone do anything, have our love used as a bargaining chip or as another authoritarian tool but simply to love out of the love we've been shown in Christ. And I do hope that seeing these two commands side by side makes more sense of the dynamic that's at play in the gospel-transformed home relationship. Uh, One commentator, I think, helpfully points out, the idea in its context is not first and foremost for wives to place themselves under the authority of their husbands, but to place themselves under their love. I think that's well put for both parties. Well, the same pattern is meant to be seen in the relationship between parents and children in Christian families. I wonder how the children in the Church of Colossae felt when uh, they knew that this part of the letter was being addressed to them from the Apostle Paul. And I wonder perhaps if their their eagerness at listening to what the Apostle was going to say to them kind of dissolved into a collective eye roll when Paul just said, obey your parents. But that's not all Paul says, is it? Look again at verse 21. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Once again, the emphasis isn't on the obedience, on the submission. It's on the new relationship we have with God in Christ. I'm sure kids here have all kinds of hopes and dreams of what they want to achieve. Things they want to do to win the admiration of many. There's an opportunity here to actually win the admiration of the king of the universe by doing the simple thing of obeying your parents. 
Again, this is not blind obedience to their every command. In some circumstances, obedience to your parents would result in displeasing the Lord. But if you do find it hard to obey or it's confusing, well, you have a Father in heaven that you can take those things to because ultimately you're aiming for his approval. And like the command to wives and husbands, the command to children must be taken together with the command to fathers, or in our case, to parents, including mothers as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We all want the best for our kids, don't we? But how easily can our best intentions and desires for our kids become a crushing and discouraging burden for them? A number of years ago, a friend of mine shared with me uh, that a rich aunt uh, had offered to pay for his son's education at any choice of elite private schools in England. A whole lot, 12 years of fancy education. Um, My friend's son was only about two or three at the time. He'd recently recovered from childhood cancer. And as we were chatting, my friend said to me, you know, I don't care if my son grows up to become a rubbish collector as long as he knows Jesus. And that's always, that's always stayed with me. And I wonder if that is the heart of what Paul's getting at here. Perhaps the antidote to provoking and discouraging our children is putting their relationship with the Lord Jesus first and foremost before anything else in our parenting, before any of our hopes and dreams for them. In fact, I hope that our hopes and dreams for our kids are actually that they would know Christ. Because if they're in Christ, and we're in Christ, we get to enjoy the best there is forever together with them. No matter where they go to school, no matter how many medals they get, no matter what job they end up having. Being in Christ is better. And just back to the kids for a moment, if you knew that this is what your parents wanted for you, they cared enough about you that they want you to know Jesus, wouldn't that make it easier to obey them? See, the relationship works together, but both, both sides are transformed by the gospel. Now, the final pair of commands is probably a little out of left field for us. Slavery is a big issue. And to help address it more thoroughly, I've, I've written up a short article that you can find linked in the study notes this week. I think it's on the Facebook page as well. You can grab it from there. If you want it and can't find it, please email me. I'll send it to you. But quite simply, slavery was a social reality in ancient Rome, and in many ways it was quite different from the racist brutality of the the transatlantic slave trade, which which Christians rightly brought to an end in the 19th century. And it's quite different from the the human trafficking, uh, the, the horrific human trafficking which still continues today. Roman slaves came from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. In fact, there were black nobles, noble Romans who owned white slaves. We would find that just bizarre today. And slaves did all sorts of jobs, from manual labor to administration, from management even to medicine. There's some suggestion that even Luke, who wrote the Gospels, might at some point have been a slave who was trained as a doctor. Now, to put Paul's words here in context, I'd like to share with you a story that was recorded by the Roman historian Plutarch about an incident between a Roman master and his slave. This comes from about 100 AD, so 40 years after Colossians was written. Uh, And the summary comes from a news article online. A Roman senator named Pupius Piso once ordered his slaves not to speak unless spoken to. He had no time for idle talk. He also arranged an elegant dinner party at which the guest of honor was to be a dignitary named Clodius. 
at the appropriate time, all the guests arrived except Clodius. So Piso sent the slave responsible for having invited the guest of honor to see where he was several times. But still, Clodius did not appear. And in desperation, Piso finally questioned the slave, did you send Clodius the invitation? Yes, said the slave. So why hasn't he come? Well, because he declined. Well, then why didn't you tell me earlier? The slave said, well, you didn't ask. You see, the character of the slave service in first century Rome was do the bare minimum and make a fool of your master if at all you can. Character of the master's authority was slaves must do everything I tell them to, even the stuff I don't tell them to do. How different is the dynamic we see in verse 22? Have a look there with me. Bond servants or slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So even in his servitude, a slave is free to serve the Lord Christ, to let his relationship with God in Christ shape the way he does his service. Where his master may not care about him, the Lord does. Where the master may not reward him, the Lord will. For his master may not give him justice and fairness, the Lord will. And while, you know, I guess here we're not slaves or slave owners, perhaps there are principles we can draw here from the way we do our work or the way we treat our employees. And just a note, as the husband and father and master are all the same person, so verse 1 tells us that husbands, fathers, and masters are all under the authority of one master in heaven. So, So much for the patria potestas. Now, I think we tend to see the wrong parts of this household code as radical because of the impact actually things like this have had on our society today. We we might not realize it, but the idea of women's rights, of children's rights, of advocating for the vulnerable, of abolishing the slave trade, they're they were all results of society actually listening to what the Bible said about these things. But far from obedience and submission being demeaning and humanizing and dehumanizing, these commands and others like them in the Bible actually transformed women and children and slaves into people of dignity and worth, and they dethroned the idea of a man's right to be a tyrant in his own home. Just imagine for a moment what... Philemon's Roman neighbors must have thought to see husbands with their wives and their children and even their slaves gathering together to worship God in Philemon's house as equals, encouraging one another as equals in Christ. The problem is in our society, even though this has profoundly influenced the way we do things, we've managed to overshoot the target with a lot of these things because the transformation hasn't retained a gospel shape. And so we're led to believe that independence at all costs is what we're built for. But the truth of the gospel is that, yes, while it's about freedom, it isn't about independence. 
the gospel is about, actually about a seismic shift of dependence from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if he is our savior, he has got to be our Lord as well. And as our Lord, our submission to him must shape every other relationship that we are a part of, especially relationships of authority, especially relationships of submission, especially relationships in the home, and even those where we relate to those who are not in Christ themselves. And though we each occupy a space in the world's social structure, we don't follow the pattern of the world, but the pattern of Jesus as we do that. That's an amazing. You think about Jesus, God's king over the whole universe, who submitted himself to his father's will totally. In fact, submission to Christ like this, it should also stop seeing the Bible's view of willing submission and loving authority ever being used as an excuse for abuse and exploitation of another person. That only happens when you remove these things from the gospel. Now, this side of history, we might find it incredible that Paul and other early Christians don't advocate for the overthrow of the patriarchy, the overthrow of the slave system. But instead, what they're encouraging here is something quite different. A gospel-shaped subversion of the system, which saw men essentially as domestic gods, and others, along with women and children, as little more than their personal property. And the impact on Roman society did not go unnoticed. People notice we have the writings of secular Romans noticing with surprise and amazement that among Christians, all of these roles were treated as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And still they were the best husbands, best wives, best children, best parents, best slaves and masters to each other. It was something the Roman system could not ever hope to achieve on its own. It was also a driving force behind the Christianization of the empire. As more and more secular Romans said, I actually want that rather than what the empire is giving me. Can you imagine the impact on our society today if we simply let the lordship of Christ shape our homes? Shape the way we relate to our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, maybe even beyond that to our employers and employees. Perhaps this morning we need to repent of being a domineering husband or of being a bossy wife or being a rebellious child or a pressuring parent. The good news is there is forgiveness and transformation available for those things in Christ. In many ways, it does seem that our society is becoming more and more like the pre-Christian Roman Empire every day. Well, what then if we took a note out of the, out of the Bible's playbook? And recaptured some of that gospel-shaped subversion. I'm sure if we did that, it would not go unnoticed. With that, why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you for how you have brought us into an entirely new relationship with yourself in Christ. And Lord, we thank you that this new relationship with you in Christ has the power to shape all of our relationships, our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even our relationships at home. And Father, I do pray this morning that wherever we find ourselves, that our relationship with Christ would shape how we relate to those alongside us, above us, and below us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.